Hi, I'm Matt. I'm Annie AK. And I'm Melissa. And together we want to welcome you to Still Great Bob. If this is your first time joining us, together we are watching AMC's Mad Men, trying to answer the question, is it still Great Bob? This week, we're discussing Season 1, Episode 12, Nixon vs. Kennedy, written by Lisa Albert, Andre Jameka... Jacometton and Maria Jacometton. But before we get to that, we have a special guest this week. Welcome to Elise, our very first guest. Yay. Hi, Elise. Hi, friends. Hello. Elise, can you tell us your Mad Men origin story? Sure. So my parents are always watching everything that comes out on TV, especially if it's a period piece. So they had watched season one and had mentioned it to me, and I, like, didn't know what that was. I was like, are people... I don't know. I didn't know what it was. So later I realized it was about advertising, and I think season four was about to come out, and I binged seasons one through three on Netflix, and I was hooked. I watched it in, like, two seconds, and I've probably seen the entire show now five or six times. So that's really about it. It's my favorite show in the entire world. That's great. Uh, so Elise is a friend of ours, and we just wanted to have her on because we know this is one of her favorite episodes. And as one of our super fan friends, we thought you'd be perfect to have on. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. I'm excited to be here. Awesome. So we're, uh, like Matt said, we are going to be talking about episode 12. It originally aired on October 11th, 2007. The hit movies that week, uh, opening at number one at the box office was Tyler Perry's adaptation of his own stage play, Why Did I Get Married? A movie I definitely forgot about. Falling to second place was The Game Plan, also forgot. And opening that week was We Own the Night in the third slot. The hit song was... Soldier Boy with Crank That. This week on Mad Men, um, the date is November 8th, 1960. It's election night where the present and the past collide, putting the future into question. So what did we think about the episode before we kind of dive into our discussion? Um, I liked it. I have tons of notes and most of them are just quotes. <laughs> so I feel like there's a lot of like, I don't know if I could call them iconic since I haven't ever seen this episode before, but like if I could predict future trends, there's a lot of iconic quotes in this episode. <laughs> You're right. It's true. <laughs> Annie, what did you think? Oh, I thought it was a lot of fun. You had some, like, drama stuff. You had some, like, sweaty, dirty t-shirt stuff. <laughs> you had um, a real interjecting with, like, uh, moments of, of pure drama. You have fun, just energetic stuff. And it was it was great. I somehow had forgotten about this episode, but it was really fun to relive. What about you, Matt? Yeah, I, I think I definitely liked it. Um, I'm kind of, I guess, light spoiler alert. I'm anticipating what comes next kind of in the, in the season finale, but Elise, I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Cause when we, when the collective, we three reached out to you about what episode to pick for the back half of season one, you picked this one. And I'm kind of curious why you chose this one. Well, I th- mostly because, I mean, a lot happens, but this episode has one of my favorite silly scenes in it when um, later when they're doing um, 
Paul's play. Mm-hmm. And it's just very, a, very silly. And they look for his, they like, Ken's looking through his office, he finds Paul's play, and you think Paul's gonna be angry, and then, like, in two seconds, he switches on this, like, I'm a director, like, persona, and it's just really silly. And the whole time, he's, like, making fun of Ken in the play, and I just, I find the whole thing ridiculous. Yeah, it's, I mean, and we'll get in the discussion here straight away, but I think in that moment from his his anger of being discovered and then to directing the play... And I say this as someone from Western Canada who's never been to New York, but that felt very, like, New York to me for mm-hmm. some reason, right? So, no, I I feel that. So, do you folks want to start with Peggy? Always. Yeah. Sure. My idol. <laughs> yeah. So, in a lot of our scenes, it's Peggy at her desk and Pete loitering by the front door maybe he's gonna go in maybe he's gonna think about it peggy doesn't have time for this shit she doesn't i loved her very first line she's like can i help you (laughs) and like pete you know how this office works like why are you like he's just doing this like power play bullshit and yeah like peggy's just not here for it at all i love it she's really just trying to do her job in this episode and everyone else is just trying to be silly and have a good time and she just wants to like go to work do her job and then go home does that remind you of anyone hildy (laughs) (laughs) um myself who does it remind you of matt who does it remind me of well i i listened to last episode that that annie melissa kind of killed it on when i was out sick with a nasty cough and everything else and it last last episode had that really kind of nice scene of almost like mentorship between don and peggy so like Mm -hmm. something Mm -hmm. that i'm kind of tracking going forward as i kind of craft a thesis rewatching the show with um kind of that as i say the 2019 lens but it's almost the 2020 lens now um not the barbara walters new show but you know the actual calendar year but the ways that, like, Peggy advances in her career and what lessons she learns and what attributes she takes on. And earlier in the season, we had, again, her, oh, I might switch blouses, too, after she had that um, mm-hmm. um encounter with, with Peter early in the... Yeah, Insane. there we go. Indiscretion. There we go. Earlier with, with Pete in the office. So when when Peggy's like, I'm just here to work and I'm going to go home and do my thing... And we know Don doesn't go home and he runs away and we can get more into that later. But Don also doesn't stay for the party that we're going to talk about here in a moment. And then Peggy ends up staying for a bit and then leaving. So it's like how they perceive themselves to kind of be above the shark tank or or aquarium or whatever metaphor we want to find that's probably better than that one of the the office pool of Sterling mm-hmm, Cooper mm-hmm. kind of sticks out for me and I find interesting. Yeah, it's an interesting point because it is like the more comfortable and confident she is in her place in the company for what she can do, the less she feels the need to integrate herself socially and play that game of climbing the ladder. And Don has always been kind of above it, like you said. Yeah, but we still see that kind of get to her when she is crying in Don's office later mm-hmm. and she says like I'm basically like oh no I have to do this there's this 
video of Snooki from the Jersey Shore when she's drunk <laughs> on the beach getting arrested and she's going, I'm a good person. <laughs> like I that mean, is, she was a good person. She is. And that's I feel like that's Peggy right here. She's saying like, you know, I'm a good person. I come here and I do my job and still they hate me. So she is like, like you said, she is above all of it and she's striving for that. But I mean, we see the kind of cracks forming and we see that even when you mm. even when you put that on and you strive for that it's still sometimes hard I think to like really not let not let that get to you especially when you're surrounded by these people all the time and yeah right. I mean they don't like her it's such a rush transition for her Elise what do you think oh yeah, yeah I was ahead. I had written I had uh, put this in the notes later but I was thinking like that one scene where Marge is like and I thought I was going to find a husband here. And Peggy's like, whatever. And she's, like, getting ready to leave. And Marge is like, oh, stay. It's going to be fun. And I'm like, is first of all, is Marge trying to, like, convince herself that it's going to be fun? Because she, two seconds ago, was like, you know, these people are awful. And I just, I appreciate that Peggy, like, knows that it's going to be ridiculous and just, like, goes home. Like, she doesn't mm-hmm. have time for that. Yeah, she's basically, like, fun for who? Yeah, exactly. Did we want to get into the the party then, right now? I mean, what else can we do? Um, before before the conversation goes much deeper, I do have a, a bit of a soapbox I do want to climb on, and I just want to state, for the record, that creme de menthe, not great, Bob. It's, like... <laughs> I have tried it once, maybe because of this episode, maybe not. I will not confirm or deny that. Um, <laughs> but it kind of tasted like mouthwash. So, yeah. And that's a five-gallon jug of creme. Yeah. <laughs> Put it in the water like, cooler. That's what I'm looking at. Like, that water cooler is ruined forever. Um, yeah, it's not, it's not recovering from this party, and I don't think a lot of us are. Yeah, I think there's a reason why there was an excess of it. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I really expected, like, a dog biscuit joke of some sort to come back around <laughs> when they asked, like, what do we have extras of? And she says, like, rum, creme de menthe, dog biscuits. I, like, wasn't sure if that was, like, dog biscuits or they was, like, an alcohol I never heard of. I didn't look that up later, but I, it's probably just dog biscuits. Yeah, I just... Interpreted it as like dog treats, but spoiler, I also have a dog, so maybe that's why. Yeah. Why didn't Why didn't they drink the rum? Is the real question. It wasn't in a five gallon jacket. Jacket. I guess not. Jar bucket. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Well, and like I don't. I know I didn't look up like you know cocktail culture in in nineteen sixties or whatever like before we recorded so shame on me as you wait re- listener I'm wagging my finger at myself but. I wonder if rum wasn't quite as generally popular in cocktail culture as we would think think now, because it's still like proper cocktails, and like you would maybe have it like you know as as part yeah. of like a cocktail, like it was a vacation sort of drink, as opposed mm-hmm. to like you know your 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 gimlets and your old fashions and that sort of stuff in in the city regularly, right? Because um, like rum and cokes is a thing which are a thing now. That's not. That's a highball. That's not a cocktail, and I think cocktail culture was still a thing. But listeners, if you know if if you know better, and you're yelling at your in your earphones, please uh, tweet at us and and let us know how I'm wrong. My sister is like randomly a rum drinker, and I think 
at least now, I don't know back then, obviously, that it's more popular in England. And I wonder if that, if because a lot of the countries or like islands that it came from were British Isles. And that Probably. kind of is something to think about. I didn't look that up. That is all conjecture, people. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I think it's funny at this party that, um, well, they're making, they're, like, talking about how they're going to have this party. They're waiting for Don to leave. Um, Harry's wife, um, has to work late, so they can't go see, what, Can Can? Um. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. His, Paul is like, oh, you better hope she's sitting on that switchboard and not doing what we're doing, which is, like, in anticipation of this, like, rowdy party. Um, and that joke doesn't go over well, and I'm just confused about why these boys haven't figured out not to make jokes about each other's wives in the office. I think because... they just enjoy shitting on each other. I Yeah, that's true, but they always seem surprised when, like, those jokes don't go over well. Like, get new material. They don't like that. <laughs> yeah, it's... No, but, like, Melissa, I think to your point, and, like, I think that's kind of an indictment of how... The men at Sterling Cooper view women in general, right? Where it's mm-hmm. like, well, better hope she's not doing that. And it's like, oh, well, that's my wife. You can't talk about her like that. Where it's like, you get married and, like, women have this, like, other status. They're no longer, you know, the secretary you're trying to, you know, bed for bragging rights. They're, you know, this other paragon, right? And, like, you can't talk. Like, it's just, it's interesting how they react to it and like yeah i don't know why if like society is saying that like women are one way before marriage and this other way after marriage and you can only like relate to them either in a or or b stage why they wouldn't adjust their their culture i don't like their jokes i don't know that's it's interesting and like it also matters like who's in the room because like full disclosure i watched last time like episode 11 also to remember what happened right before and the same thing happened with the quote-unquote exercise Mm -hmm. machine they're joking Mm -hmm. on the one guy's wife that's not in the room and then you know freddie's wife gets joked on and that's like the end of the world and a fight almost breaks out yeah i don't even think it's necessarily how they see the women i think it's how they seem to think they're expected to behave as men like they seem this this is the performance that they're supposed to be playing. They're supposed to think that oh, all wives are all hen peckers. Rah, rah, right. rah, rah, rah. Uh, but then when one of them just like what what the fuck, dude? That's my wife. What are you doing? And then they're like, oh, this is. I thought I was that we were. This is the game we were playing, right? I'm I'm playing the game. These are the rules we established. Are are we right. playing a different game now? And um, you know, it's it's the whole thing with how the patriarchy and toxic masculinity mm-hmm. kind of hurts everyone not just women it's 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 just so exhausting i guess is the word for it it's because like you said it's amazing how it's surprising every single time when they're like oh i didn't i i offended you okay i didn't know we were sorry i i I don't want to say i'm sorry though (laughs) Well, well, if you talk shit about my wife, you're obviously emasculating me and that yeah. you're really talking shit yeah, about me. Is. Like, you're, that's really that's what my it comes shit. down to. Um, but I was surprised in this episode that I guess Kenzie is the least trash. 
of all of the men at the party? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> He's like super pleased with himself, but and that's like that's like the thing with Paul, right? And I think that goes back to was it like episode two? We're talking about, and I think I compared him to like Seth Cohen from the OC, <laughs> um, even back then. But it's like Paul thinks, capital letters, italicies, that like he's better than the rest. And like we we've mm-hmm. we've called that crew the Hitler Youth, um, kind of throughout the season. And I'm pretty sure that that reference like started with 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 Paul mm-hmm. textual like touring like Peggy around, and like. In some ways, I, I still do firmly believe that he's, like, the 1960 version of Seth Cohen from the OC because he's nerdy and quirky and, like, is, you know, attracted to and has, wants to date the this show's Venus, whether in, in the Mad Men's case it's uh, Joan and in the, in the case of the OC it's, it's Summer. Um, but then because he just, you know, is the least trash and says trash things but doesn't actually do them... Um, mm-hmm. that's when I think some of that entitlement from like patriarchy and toxic masculinity and all those things kind of comes into play with Paul. And I think we see that a bit when, you know, he and, and Joan have their, their conversation after they act out, um, his play and even the whole arc of, you know, Kinsey's play is, is I think it's entertaining, but it's also like, like interesting too, right? Where mm-hmm. I think Paul has a little bit of like entitlement issues because he's the least trash or potentially the least trash and he knows it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I uh, heard a comedian once who put it, how do you put it? He said, um, thinking about, you know, all the me too stuff and how they don't actually speak out. But the mentality was if I'm not part of the problem, then I must be part of the solution. Right. When there's this whole other category of uh, gray shittiness that you could also be a part of. You mean the world's not black and white, Annie? Uh, it turns out. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, and I think that that keys into what we were talking about a couple of week or a couple of weeks ago. This re- recording, um, but in was it episode ten? What, yeah, the the long weekend stuff where Don is less shitty than Roger, but it's is the episode trying to make us feel better about Don by comparison I don't know right it's again where where we as cishet men exist in that gray and assume that we're the good guy because we're not the worst guy Mm. right well I mean that was kind of um just thinking about in like the early um 2000s um to mid that 2000s i feel like that was kind of thing anyways these kind of anti-heroes who on paper on a very um static scale of like morality not great but relatively speaking they're both charming they you know they had this obstacle of being the people that they were that they were always fighting against but somehow like you you still grow to love them and still prefer them because compared to other people they are slightly less shitty um, and I think that's not that's something that still happens now, but I don't think we accept it or excuse it as much. No, but I still think we praise men for like bare okay. minimum decency. Yeah, yeah, like like, like bar. right, and like I think too, 
I've noticed especially like in parasocial communities online and things like that where there's like this whole sense of like performative allyship right and then how like men cishet men specifically will use to like hey I'm a feminist so let me use feminism as a stick to beat other men instead of like actually like combating some of these structural inequalities where it's like they, they like clothe themselves in like this cloak of like righteousness just to like beat other men and then center themselves in the conversation instead of like those that are marginalized so i don't know it's Mm. it's complicated (laughs) this it reminds me of that um instagram account and then there's like a book awards for good boys and it's like literally like cartoonist that's like well like or she'll even post like text she receives and it's just like people that like clearly want praise for doing the bare minimum no i'm looking for the cookie right like yeah mm-hmm. exactly and like maybe it's especially like tough in like social media and other parasocial communities and things like that because tone is implied but it's like you're just you're looking for like the kudos and the reaction and that and that's making your your allyship kind of about you and even now that i stop and think about that as i identify this inequality i'm the one talking about it so i'm gonna be quiet for a bit i apologize <laughs> mm-hmm. can i make a comment on jo- jo- uh joan and paul's convo a little bit yeah for sure because i was definitely gonna say like the most well not the most we've just had a very valuable conversation but i think in context of mad men the episode i think the most valuable thing we get out of paul in this episode is some insight into joan yeah, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. I think I think I also got something about like men and men in general. Mm-hmm. Also, like pa- everything Paul says to Joan like isn't right. Like he like makes an assumption. Like she's like he's like come sit down, and she's like no, and he's like oh you can't sit down in that dress, and like that's not even true. He was just like makes assumptions about her motivations the whole time, and then he asks her if she liked the play, and he's like. And she says no, because the play sucks. And um, she's like, he says to her, oh, I like when you're mean to me. And she says, I know. But she's not being mean to him. She's just being honest. And it, mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. bothers me that, that he just takes being honest or saying what he doesn't want to hear as being mean. Because she's just telling the truth. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that makes... It seemed like if, you know, if women are telling you what you don't want to hear, that it might be the truth and you're going to take, like, men might take it as, oh, she was just being mean or, like, further, you know, oh, she's just a bitch or whatever. And actually the way you're you're yeah. um, repeating it, it makes it sound like, oh, no, it's not just he's, you know, calling her mean. He's telling her that you're just acting this way to flirt with me. Right. Yeah. Like, it's an act. It's when about she's me. Just, exactly, exactly. When she was just answering his questions the way that she, in the way that, to explain how she felt or what she thought. Mm-hmm. I think that he's still making it about himself. Yeah. Oh, I was uh, just talking to some other people, um, some other people of color about this tweet I saw not too long ago about this these little this little white girl at school crying because there was 
because she heard about this black girl magic that she can't have. And it, was, and it just was so emblematic to me. I was like, wow, everything just really has to belong to you, doesn't it? Even this <laughs> other thing that is not related to you, it still somehow oh has to have you at the center. And it is something that you ju- do see from people of, of privilege, regardless if it's ill-intended or not. It's just somehow it all has to circle back to you despite everything else you already have right so when we say that paul kinsey is the least trash it is once again relative (laughs) yeah Yeah, i mean (laughs) but i definitely do before we move on want to point out that the reason that it didn't work out between joan and paul is because he has a big mouth so yeah now we have a little bit of insight into joan like she values discretion she's not here um to be anyone's like trophy secretary mm-hmm. and i like that about her uh i found her a little yeah. difficult to understand thus far and uh, yeah i mean I it like does what does kind of her. if she was seen as that person it would kind of undermine all the work that she's put in to be this amazing goddess secretary basically mm-hmm. wouldn't it yeah And it kind of checked out for me because we saw her, every time we saw her with Roger and him falling over his feet to like idolize her and all that stuff, she seemed so much more put off and like putting up the boundaries and telling him, you know, if you want to run away, sure, great. But like, give me advance notice. I got plans. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. So this party's super, super eventful. Um, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We get a couple other uh i guess couplings you should say um but yeah i mean harry and hildy hildy of all people she has her one moment where she's a little bit of a spoil sport because she's over everyone's shit but then then i just went hildy no i just love when she's like to harry i never saw your eyes before and he's like there they are just the two of them and I'm like <laughs> is she talking about his is he talking about his eyes or just the fact that the two of them are alone in a room together it's unclear it is unclear and it's like oh I hate to say this even but it's like kind of sweet like I yeah. in my notes he I does have like, nice eyes yeah in my notes and he seems like a nice guy I mean not when he's cheating on his wife obviously. capital letter nice guy well, yeah, no, because right. it never really was so much of an act in the way it kind of is a little bit with Kin, with uh, yeah, with with Kinsey, with Harry. He's just kind of like, well, I know what the right thing to do is, so I'm gonna do it. I'm not gonna be some to- like complete lech towards all the women. So of course, Hildy thinks you're you're like the good one, right? Yeah. Um, I like a a thing that happens. With his glasses also, um, like, in the morning when she, like, hands them to him and he's, like, frustrated and trying to fix them with tape. And she says, she's like, Harry, um, like, I hope I didn't step on them. And she's talking about the glasses. But I just felt like she was, like, talking about, like, oh, I hope I didn't fuck your life up. Like, this mm-hmm. <laughs> Which, like, and that shouldn't even be on her anyway. And exactly. then she tries yes. to pieces it together by, like, first she find, she looks for them before she even finds her bra and, you know, hands them to him and then tells him about the optometrist because she's a goddamn good secretary. <laughs> yeah, she's just healthy. I just feel Hildy. so bad for her in the morning. Like, he's pissed because he fucked up 
and like she feels so guilty and like he won't even look at her and, and like I didn't know if any of you guys have had this experience but when you kind of mess up and the person that you're trying to apologize for is like yeah no 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 it's totally fine I get right. it I played my own part in it too and you're like oh, let please be mad at me <laughs> yeah she's like it's not it meant nothing like so she he's like she's like reassuring him that she's not gonna like tell his wife or tell anybody mm-hmm. or it's fine and I just feel like it's I just feel so bad for her because she's so know. like naked and vulnerable and and you know she crossed a, a line here that she probably set for herself just based mm-hmm. on how she's been up until now and yeah and like yeah, she she shows outright dis- disdain towards Pete, um, but that's just good sense. It is, <laughs> and it's like you know she picked the best of the worst, but I mean, mm-hmm. it still sucks. Oh, Can we talk be. about the panty game in oh, this? Yes. I mean, yes. I don't really want to. I mean, to, I guess do. we have to. So, like the part, like the. So I guess, I don't know, they make a woman run, they chase the woman, and then she falls to the ground, I guess, and then they have to guess her panties, and Allison's running, and Ken is like, who had blue? And, like, it's so gross. I've seen this episode probably six or seven times. It's grosser every time. Are you going to tell me what color it is, or do I have to find that myself? And it's just, it's gross. It's so terrifying and predatory. And just to see them leap onto the woman, it looked like a wildlife documentary. <laughs> like That's the lion call. on the savanna and the wildebeest is chasing, and it no point doesn't really seem fun at all. And it worked. Like Allison totally slept with Ken Cosgrove. <laughs> like, yeah, I don't and he understand. says, "Can I take you home?" And he takes her to fucking Paul Kenzie's office. Like you are. The worst. <laughs> yeah. Um, you didn't even awful. respect her enough to bring her to your actual home, you motherfucker. Like, when he said, like, can I take you home? Like, I was like, oh, that's nice. I mean, the bar is incredibly low for nice right now <laughs> in this moment. But, um, when you said it was, like, a wildlife documentary, that reminded me of that scene in Mean Girls when, like, the hallway fight <laughs> with the girls yes! turns into, like, that, like, over-stylized, like, teen girls as, as you know, jungle predators or whatever except for that movie makes it abundantly clear that what you're seeing is not reality and this show is like no no this is what we do here <laughs> totally right here normal. in the old workplace it's super normal yeah but um you know someone missed this party unlike the time that pete decided to go out celebrating um and have no fun at the bar he just decided to mope at home instead <laughs> oh lord under the guise that he was, like, with his in-laws or whatever. And, like, maybe he was, but we don't see that. Uh, and we can talk about, like, Pete for real later, but I definitely want to talk about Trudy because we actually get to see her. Oh, I love Trudy. Trudy rules. She's just so... Not even just compared to Pete. She is, in general, just one of the clearest-minded... S- solid people on this entire show i would like to see a spinoff about how she even ended up married to pete's trash ass in the first place yeah it's like a horror story where she's just like this woman who's got so much going for her and she's made out of light she goes to like summer camp with her family and the cat skills 
But Pete on paper has a lot going for like like Pete on paper and like Pete the person. Sorry, Elise. Um, <laughs> I'm a Pete stan. It's not for like season one. No, fair enough. Right. Fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. Um, but like Pete on paper and like who Pete actually is, I think, are kind of conflicting things, right? Mm. Um, but Annie, I wanted. To I want to ask you a question because you have something here in the notes that like I'm curious about Melissa and Elise's read on because I think my read disagree my read isn't necessarily the same as yours Mm -hmm. but you have down here that like Trudy didn't look at the the secret box from Adam that that Pete Brock brought home and I guess I'm I inferred that she ended up she did peek at it and that's why she she was so adamant that it's not yours, it's not right. Melissa and Elise, and I guess we'll go to Elise first. Did Trudy look at the box that Pete brought home, yes or no? I thought it was unclear. I don't know if she saw that it said Donald Draper on the outside and knew it wasn't his, or if she looked inside and saw it wasn't his. I was really... like I. When the conversation starts, I was like, oh, yeah, I remember she didn't look. And then at the end, I was like, oh, wait, maybe she did. I am It's. I don't think it's very clear. Melissa? I took it as, like, she looked at enough of it to realize those weren't baby pictures of Pete in there. And then she was like, oh, <laughs> shit, what is this? <laughs> well, because it still had the packaging or the wrapping around it, didn't it, when he gave it back to Don and... Uh, as we saw last episode, it says Donald Draper on it, and it says really large, personal. Yeah, which is why he takes it, though, I think. like yeah. yeah. And no, maybe I do project some sort of virtue onto Trudy that isn't as explicit. But with her saying, you know, I don't want any secrets and talking about how, um, you know, she looked at her father's box that was similar, it actually seemed to me that she was being genuine, going this... Yeah you know, breaking this bond of trust and then learn as well as learning whatever was in her father's secret box was so traumatizing on an emotional level and, and like crossing some sort of boundary that she wasn't going to do it with Pete. She wanted him to actually be open about it and let her and, and make the choice to share with her what the secret was, especially if it's not Uh. his own. That's how I took it. Why is Trudy so good? Because she's freaking Alison Brie. Yeah, I love her. I love Trudy and I love Alison Brie. Yeah. So, I mean, that's it's, it's just kind of like I feel like Trudy can come from more of a place of moral reprimand because she, I mean, we've seen her be the stand-up person that she is. Even if she is a bit proud, she has a very clear view uh, and, and like sense of uh, morality, I think. Yeah. That... Pete is really pales in comparison to and probably also has a hard time being around because it reminds him of his own cowardice and his failures. So, okay, I'm going to, like, I'm thinking out loud here, but I'm trying to, like, rope another theme through. So we talked about Kinsey and Joan talking and, Mm -hmm. you know, things like that there and and how Paul perceives Joan's truth-telling as flirting and he's into it and, you know, he... For lack of a better word, because it's Friday night when we're recording this, fetishizes her truth-telling and makes it about him and and what he's into, right? Trudy is truth-telling and, you know, being the moral center for Pete, which then my mind jumps to Rachel Mankin, 
where when Don's confronted with the truth that we'll unpack later when we talk a little bit more about Pete, he goes to Rachel and Rachel plays, in my mind, kind of a, a similar truth telly role where you have the woman being a, a, a confidant or truth teller to set the the man on oh. on some kind of path. And I don't know, like maybe it's just like local, like, you know, contemporary. We're recording this shortly after the latest Star Wars movie came out. And, you know, that's heavy in the, the cultural discussion and things like that. But like, I'm wondering how much I'm becoming really, really sick of that trope. Honestly, until you mention it, it's something that I forget happens and falls into. I want to sit here and wonder, is it just in the writing where you have these female characters, these amazing female characters that are complex and interesting and strong in their own personal ways, where they their stories become, you know, everything is in context of the men that they're opposite against? Or is it the way that we're perceiving it? Or is it both? And, you know, who's kind of fault that is I did write down um when Rachel says to him why are you doing this to me what kind of man are you this I, I said this is too much to put on someone that she will somehow save him this manic pixie dream girl bullshit it always brings me back to like 500 days of summer where Joseph Gordon-Levitt is convinced that this woman who is telling him this is not who she is this is not the kind of relationship she gets into and still keeps expecting her to somehow fill this void and, um, you know, fill that void in his life that he's looking for, even if she's telling him outright, this is not it. It's, oh, it is kind movie. of, it's a great movie and it grow and it just gets better with time. And it's that same kind of thing here where Don is unable to cope with his life and just like you know when he got that raise or that bonus and he wanted to run away with midge now mm -hmm. life is getting hard and you know once in the past he tried running away from all his problems and his hard hard life and it worked just fine so of course he's gonna do it again now that he's faced with this incredibly difficult conflict with pete trying to blackmail him remember when you said people do it all the time yeah, hmm? right. I do it personally all the time. Yeah, I was like, who is he talking about? <laughs> Just to go back really quick to what Annie said, like, whether it's the writing or how we're perceiving it, I think that if we are perceiving that the women are always just following along the plots of the men, even if it's not written to be that way, somebody's bias is seeping into this writing if that's how we're perceiving it, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with Melissa. It it's really there if we're if we're seeing it that and way. And like also death of the author. I don't care what you meant to do. <laughs> you put it in there <laughs> and that's how my feelings are feeling. So now it's real. <laughs> I mean, it is kind of our default state of 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 how we see things in storytelling. The female uh, characters generally tend to be within the context of the male characters and you know, that's why so many things pa uh, fail to pass the Bechdel test, which is not even the most amazing test of uh, female empowerment storytelling or anything. It's just a very basic, are you actually people? Well, and like, and that totally, like, so I'm like trying to come at this from like a couple different like angles and like different lenses, right? Where it's like society, patriarchy, socializes men to be like the only like 
emotion that you're allowed to feel that is like coded as masculine is like anger. That's the only thing you're allowed to feel. Power. Yeah, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so like what we're seeing I think on the show a bit, which I think is a manifestation of bias, unconscious or not, but then also I think reflects a reality that I imagine existed in 1960 and 2007 and still in 2019-2020 is the idea like because men are socialized by society at large that power anger these are the good masculine emotions when you're feeling like anything less than that you don't know how to process it so you turn outwardly and that tends to be in a heterosexual relationship be a cis woman and being because because society also tells you as a man that the only thing you can care about is the only emotion that you can feel is anger then everything else is through like the more like nurturing kind of you know quoted like relationships of that and when don goes to rachel in this episode one of the first things she says to him is like oh did something happen with roger again because the first time he showed up at her door not with a fur coat but you know showed up at her door nonetheless was when roger had his heart attack and don was feeling vulnerable Right. So I think that that unfortunately is still a pattern that we kind of have seen replicated over time. And it's frustrating. I find his. Sorry to like, you know, I it did before anyone had a comment on that. I just mine was separate. So I didn't want to veer the conversation in another direction. Veering is what we do. <laughs> OK, so like my take on when he shows up at her door with all of his bullshit, I feel like normally he's so calm and, like, thinks about what he's trying to say and what he's trying to get out of people, and he's a calculating person, and I feel like in this moment he's just saying whatever comes to his mind. He's freaking out completely. And I'm like, is this the real Don Draper? Like, is he... Is he this panicked person like when he I mean we'll get to it later I guess but when he like assumes the Don Draper persona and he like quick thinks like does whatever his panicky self does like that is that the real him rather than you know we see him calm and like cool in his meetings and with his wife and he like has you know, his persona of what he's trying to be all the time. I don't know that I'm even making any sense right now. No, you, you're you 100% making sense because I... <laughs> but like, not I not because like I agree, but yes, you are making a sense and I do agree. <laughs> okay. mm-hmm. Well, that's two good things. Uh, but yeah, like, he's just saying, like, whatever like, he, like, whatever's coming to him and it just seems like he's just in reacting. that moment he's, yeah. yeah, in that moment when he's just reacting, he's just, like, being completely himself that, that we haven't seen before yeah and uh i don't remember if i put it somewhere but like we don't see him shaken and afraid very often when pete opens his mouth and starts telling him that he knows about dick whitman and you see something on his face that we've never really seen before except for when uh adam came by he's not great with processing his emotions as we've learned in the past he's 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 super immature in that sense so 
you know, instead of actually dealing with things and being a grown ass man like he purports himself to be, his reaction is to run away. And like we said, Rachel is the one who's calling him out on it. She actually asks him, are you 15 years old? And it's like, I mean, kind of. <laughs> that reminds me of when she was like, is this an apocalyptic situation where you get to do whatever you want? She really does see him so clearly, but except she, I think she very clearly also lies to herself so she could give into yeah. this feeling that she hasn't allowed herself to have before or hadn't fi- found before. Yeah, so a, a couple thoughts. Firstly, I agree, and I think in that, that exchange, too, like, Rachel in that moment seems to have a pretty um, clear realization about how their relationship isn't and can't go anywhere and how it's a fantasy and things like that. But, like, I think, too, with her, like, what are you 15 years old comment about him being a child, which, like, on one hand, I get, and I I'm trying to, like, thread my comments carefully because I don't want to seem like retweets are endorsements. But I also wonder if a little bit, like, like people, whomever they are, can be in crisis and act in similar ways. And I think that, like, the whole, at least for me, the whole, like, you're in crisis or you're feeling these things and like it's wrong just like man up isn't like a great response either even though like i am totally on rachel's side here but like the way it's i do agree that like don is not making healthy choices um and is making bad choices but it's just interesting how we can still like code our responses to that in potentially damaging language and damaging framing. Right? So, I say this as someone who was told he cried too much when he went to Cubs when he was in, in elementary school. So, full full disclosure. And see, there I am, weaponizing sensitivity again, much like Don no, Draper. No. I, I will, but, but, like, you know what I mean? So I don't, I don't even necessarily think it's, like, a man thing or, like, yeah. a thing. It's, it's... I mean, 15 years old in my mind is someone who acts very instinctish, in, instinctively and doesn't like just feels things. It's just his reaction isn't I'm going to deal with it or I'm scared yeah. or I'm sad. Yeah. It's fuck it. I'm going to leave. Bye. Yeah, I think the the problem isn't his strong emotions. The problem is that he showed up at her house and was like, fuck your life, your career, yeah. everything you built let's dip and she's like i'm sorry like mm-hmm. excuse me only a 15 year old could think that that would be a reasonable reaction to like a crisis no. and it's even worse because he doesn't actually tell her what happened she's just supposed to be like don's panic is number one priority yeah, let's fix totally. this even if we don't know what it is and he keeps saying like you know me better than everyone like we're number one besties or whatever but like no, but like they but they're not because like he's Romeo projecting. And Juliet, well, yeah, yeah. And like, sixteen. He told her facts about him that he didn't tell anyone else, but that's not the same as like knowing someone. Like you can know everything about someone yeah. and still not know 
who they are and how they think and what their priorities yeah. are, like, etc. And then he thinks that just because he said things to her one time that that means that they're basically, like, one soul. When the one thing that he knows about her is how lonely her childhood was, but he was like, fuck my kids. And obviously she's going to be like, no. I also wonder, like, she says in their conversation, like, we talked about this or, like, we, you know, like, we had a conversation about being together or whatever. She implies that. And I'm like, I wonder what that conversation even was because it could have just been like, oh, we should be together, which he probably meant like run away somewhere. And she probably meant like, okay, you get divorced and we're going to like be in New York City. I'm going to have my job. You're going to have your job. And like, we're going to co your children. Exactly. <laughs> like, yeah. I just feel like they might have had a conversation like, oh, we should be together. But like, they probably didn't go into like, detail or explain like what that means like they what that means Mm -hmm. because when he she when he says to her all of this like let's run away she's like in the moment realizing wait this isn't what I thought she doesn't say like this isn't what we talked about she said this isn't how I thought it would be so I just seems like they were never on the same page it's fun to have those you know talk about those kind of fantasies and of course. Usually, for the most part, when you're having those conversations, it's kind of like this, like, unspoken thing going, this is not real, but it's just, like, it's our having fun and kind of having our own little fantasy life together and running away together in our minds. But then she's like, wait, no, we're, we're real people. We live in the real world. No, I totally understand that. I've, I've like, you know, everyone's had conversations like that, so I, yeah. I get that. No, I'm but not I'm disagreeing just, yeah. with you. I'm just, uh, yeah. just saying, you know, like, yeah, of course. <laughs> Yeah, but, like, from um, an outsider looking in, I'm like, they were not on the same page. No, definitely not. I was just going to bring it back to 500 Days of Summer when, uh, was it Joseph Gordon-Levitt's sister's like, just because she likes the same bizarre crap as you doesn't mean she's your soulmate. And I think oh, it's this Oh, my sister used to text me that all the time. Anyways, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it's just going back to, like, you know, like Melissa was saying, just because she knows something's about him doesn't mean she knows him. But I think in this moment, she's getting to know him real well. She's getting to see how he actually sees her and has seen all the women in his life before. Is that yeah. it's in context of his own pain and his own like image of how he's supposed to be. She's there to play a part in his like mental fantasies. And right now that fantasy is we're going to run away. We're going to get away. And she realizes you don't want to run away with me. You just want to run away. Yeah. It's like Simba and the Lion King. It's funny. <laughs> it's funny when I wrote my notes, I was like, I still feel like he cares about her or like he cared about her. And then even though he's completely making her feel like he doesn't care about her at all, like he doesn't care about her job or anything, as you guys had already said. And now, like, I'm like, yeah, maybe he did. Maybe he was just whatever <laughs> like, it's like the idea of her right yeah like I'm, yeah. I'm like turned like off I, from my own thought already yeah i don't think he's unconscious you know consciously not seeing her as a person i don't even believe that he doesn't feel something for her or cares for her or you know that she doesn't that she doesn't mean anything to him like i think he cares for her about as much as he is capable of uh within like the work he's done emotionally <laughs> 
Right. But Which it's, is zero. it's it's not <laughs> enough. Yeah, exactly. It's it's not enough. Like he could probably get there. I think they have a real base level connection, but he's incapable of doing more with that. Or even acknowledging that he can do more. I can't wait to get to season four. Okay. Spoiler <laughs> <alert>. <laughs> oh no. Melissa, you've yeah. what do you think? Well, now I'm thinking about a uh, fictitious season four that does <laughs> <laughs> No, but I just, um, I love Rachel. I loved her the whole time. And I, I do love that, like, quite often with these women that Don falls for on whatever level, the thing that tends to draw him to them is also the thing where eventually they're like, that that allows them to be like, wait a second. Yes, that's like what Something's I was going right. to try to say if I could get my shit. <laughs> Sorry. Like the things, the things that he liked about Rachel are the same things that he's ignoring in this conversation. And so it's really difficult oh. to give him enough credit to say like, oh, yeah, I think Don cares about Rachel. I don't I think Don cares about like a pretty brunette lady who talked shit to him at a like business meeting. I don't think he cares about Rachel because I don't think he thinks about Rachel. Something you just said made me think about the Paul like Kinsey yeah. thing again, where where like he talked shit to her and he probably thought she sorry she talked shit to him and he probably thought that was flirting. Well, it's kind of like my thing with uh, Jennifer Lawrence, where everyone's just like, "Oh my god, she's so amazing! She plays football and she doesn't. She's so mouthy and she's so brash. And then when she doesn't live up to you know a certain population, a uh, certain part of the population's idea of what she is and cater to their idea of who she was, suddenly they're like, "Man, she's a bitch!" And we're gonna hack into her camera, Ugh. you know, her iCloud account and show yeah. her crap off and that'll show her and she, then she's just like all right peace <laughs> that whole thing like hurts my heart mm-hmm. and then to go back to any year 500 days of summer reference yeah. one of my favorite parts of that film is and it's scored to regina specter this is where we can drop in um regina specter um hero great song um but that but that it has those like two like versions of like expectation versus reality after they mm-hmm. reconnect on that train and it's like i mean it's perfect and that part of a good movie rules but like i think that's a little bit what we're talking about in terms of like dawn's and most men's fantasy lives where it's like oh she was nice to me so she must have a crush on me right like this is kind of what we're talking like you know Mm-hmm. And then blaming the the other person for not following through on what fantasy them did. Yeah, and then and then I think like the flip side of that is what we were talking about earlier with with Harry and Hildy, where like it becomes about Harry's remorse and letting Harry off the hook, and mm-hmm. you know freeing him of like his own decisions that he made as as an adult, and like putting the emotional work, weight of that onto Hildy like we were talking about like it's again like again putting the weight of that that's it's it's not right and it's not fair and it's it, and I think it's similar to what we're talking about here mm-hmm. she's not gonna save you bro you gotta do that yourself I mean she Rachel kind of saves Don because she gives him a pretty sweet line that he gets to turn around and use on Pete okay that that like really like upset me and that <laughs> 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 No, and then again, it's it's like for like non madman reasons, 
but it's just like I think it's something that you're seeing in your local big budget space opera in the last two episodes that should not get named because I'm a Kevin Costner fan. I'm not a I'm not a space opera fan anymore. It's my long running <laughs> Twitter bit. But the way then cishetmen use cis women as avatars to work through their emotions like hey you are a woman and are obviously more caring and nurturing than i the angry power monger am so help me work through my stuff tell me this nice you know lesson and let me internalize that but not really and i'll just weaponize that against you or someone else later on and i think that's what Don does with Rachel's advice to Pete later. I think that may happen in a Star War, and I'm sick of it. I will be quiet now. Thank you for listening. No, that's a good point. Oh, I was going to say, and I know Matthew Weiner used to write for The Sopranos, but um, that is something that happened on The Sopranos all the time, where like someone would tell Tony Soprano something, and he would kind of blow it off, and then later he would say it to somebody else like he was like a genius. And I thought it was very charming, and now I feel like it's, like, in too many places. Like, it was it was charming in, like, the late 90s when it was, like, you know, the first time I had seen a show do that. And now it's just, like, too much. Yes. Yes to all. But specifically to Matt's point, um, it sucks more because Rachel is saying this as, like, this, like, disbelieving thing, like, oh my god, you haven't thought this through, like, you are 100% not who I thought you were, this is unbelievable to me, and then Don acts like he is just a pillar of strength, oh, Pete, you haven't thought this through, sir, you have just, like, I don't want to say he, like, ruined Rachel's life, I'm sure he hasn't, but, like, he's caused some damage, and then just turns around and acts like it's nothing like he has these like great life lessons he can impart on Pete this is all the same things that you just said but (laughs) (laughs) yep the Tony Soprano special it's the same it's the same thing it was usually something his therapist said to him and then he would say it to like his mom or his wife or something at least in therapy you're like there to do some emotional growth so if you pick up that's fair that's good (laughs) but like Don was in the middle of like really ruining someone's day yeah. And instead of, like, trying to not do that, he was like, oh, a one-liner. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> and, like, I think, like, as, like, a trope or a thing that, like, happens in storytelling, it can be a good manifestation of someone internalizing a lesson and then then showing them when they repeat it that, like, hey, they've actually thought about this and and, and you know taken the lesson to heart as maybe happened in a 2017 star war um but then again when it happens again maybe two years later in a 2019 star war um it can read totally differently where it's like they're taking the lesson and not and not really like they're hearing the words but not necessarily like Hearing the intent? I don't know. I have Rise of Skywalker feelings. Yeah, yeah. I have Rise of Skywalker feelings. Sorry, everyone. (laughs) Like in a, like a, fuck you, I'm not a weak person. Let me show you how strong I am and I'm gonna do it by showing off to Pete kind of thing. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and then then by like peacocking with it, like you're kind of then 
draping it in and be by being more aggressive with it, whether overtly or subvertly, you're you're draping it in this kind of these this more patriarchal kind of power play sort of clothes, which I think undermine the the actual advice. But hey, we got some good Dick Whitman stuff in this episode. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We did. Um, and just one last note. I'm just sort of thinking about how, um, because Rachel burst that one fantasy bubble of being the person that he would run away, who would run away with him and start this new life. He just falls back into this other fantasy where he's this guy who's in control and full of integrity and he's the hero and he's going to do the right thing and he's not going to let someone bully him. Yeah, I also, and I know Elise feels this way too, so I'm not trying to steal her thunder, but I feel like he also learned a little lesson about, you know, not being bullied, uh, from Peggy (laughs) she gives him when he catches her in his office she gives him this speech about how you know it's not fair like good people innocent people get hurt other people who are not good get to walk around doing whatever they want it's not fair and I have that in my notes and I know Elise had it in her notes that Peggy gave this not fair speech and Don was like yeah I'm good Pete's bad (laughs) He not getting away with this. So we had another woman telling the, a male character. And, uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I didn't even think yeah. of it that it's way. A com- it's funny. a one-two combo. Yes. Yeah. yes. I think my other favorite part of that scene when um, Peggy is crying in his office and tells him that speech is that Don's like, here, have a drink. Like, that's such like a ni- the 1960s, like, yeah, you're yeah. upset. And she gives her have speech some and whiskey. Like, Finish it. <laughs> Finish yeah. It yeah. Also, clear like, like my glass. Clear, clear our glasses. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, have a have a have this whiskey and then wash the glasses. But also back to work. Um. Yeah. No, I one the one difference between like Don and Peggy though versus Don and Rachel is that Rachel isn't. It's it's more of a two way road uh, street for me with Don and Peggy. With Rachel, mm-hmm. it's just a lot of taking on Don's behalf. Yeah. With Don, you've had the development of this, like, kind of respectful platonic relationship. He sort of has started mentoring her and her uprise up in the company. And here, by her pegginess, her example, um, he actually seems to have found this sort of weird inner strength and integrity. Because he sees this person in front of her being like, it's really hard and really complicated being a person with like more responsibilities and trying to do the right thing. And I'm just going to fucking feel my feelings and suck it up and then deal with it. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if he quite learned, fully learns the lesson, but I think it's it's the beginning of inspiring something in her the way that like Peggy is starting to find her own inner strength in what she's dealing with. And I love that a lot. Yeah, I really like that scene between Don and Peggy. I really like Don and Peggy together. That's good. Me too. They're great. I do like how sometimes she seems to have, she's like having, she's feeling out her feelings and working through things. And he just kind of looks at her like, you know, watching someone pick their nose and not trying to look at it directly. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, oh, okay. (laughs) Don't want to embarrass you, but like, ew. Cover those up with a drink. Yeah, and I did like that I kind of read that, like, Don now doesn't want Pete to, you know, be rewarded for his bad behavior, and it made me think, like, I guess Don, and Don gives that speech to Pete, like, you've never worked for anything, yada yada, you know, does Don, but let me think of how to, like, 
put this together. Don, I guess, ha- has this moment where he doesn't want Pete to be rewarded, you know, for his bad behavior, but Don's behavior is also bad. So I'm thinking about, like, why does Don feel like he has the right to behave badly, but Pete doesn't? And the only thing I can come up with is that Don didn't have everything handed to him. Like, he built this Don Draper life from the ground up. So has he earned the right to behave badly in a way that Pete hasn't? Well, that's the American dream, right? Pulling yourself up by the bootstraps. And then acting like a dickhead. Yeah, I do think uh, he <laughs> at least has convinced himself that that gives him the right yeah. to to be the person that he is. And he did work his way up through the company, you know, from the very bottom. And Pete kind of seems to think after two years, he should be the head of accounts. But two I mean, whole I, years. <laughs> two whole years. I do love that both Peggy and Pete are just like, you know what? Everything's really tough, but fuck Pete. Yeah. For sure. Um, but they roll up to Sterling's office. I love Eric Cooper's that. office, you mean? Yes. <laughs> sorry. I have a really hard time with that. I wish they were name tags. I don't mean to be that guy. I'm sorry. No, I mean, I should know what the characters' names are. <laughs> but also, I feel like later like later on, it, everyone's office has more of a personality where you'll be able to like tell where they Mm-hmm. So like everyone now i feel like everyone's offices kind of look the same yeah cooper's is definitely the only one you don't wear shoes in <laughs> yeah and it yes. is a good bit of comedy of them like rushing up to his office and like still trying to like talk it out with each other as they're going up there and they're like still kind of at each other's throats while they're taking their shoes off and it just felt like um you know just like in scenes where it's just like a bit of comedy where people are like rushing to be the first person to like say something so that they can get like Break their attention. word in first but they have to like do all these little like tasks before they can like, take their shoes off <laughs> Yeah, because up until then it is like a game. It's literally like a, it's basically a game of chicken yeah. the whole time. And Pee right. I love this line. So you'd rather blow yourself up than make me head of accounts? And I was like, I mean, yeah. Have you met you? Like <laughs> yeah. literally everything is better than you right now. For sure. Yeah. I don't. I'm I don't blame doing that. blame Don for a second in that. But I mean, he keeps saying like, I earned this job. I deserve it. And uh, Don goes through this whole thing of like, what, just because you worked for a couple of years, you never really worked that hard just because you went to boarding school and prep school and some fancy college. And I was like, dude, if you did, you really does. Do you really deserve it? Do you, you would you have to go to the means to like blackmail someone? I would think that's a sign that maybe you didn't do all everything that you should have. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Good point. Can I throw something out there? Absolutely. Yes. What if Don doesn't want it to go how it goes? What if, like, it's not a game of chicken and, and, and Don does want it all to blow up? Because oh. then he has to run and then, like, he's free of that. Like, I don't... I'm not convinced that's what's going on. But, I like, I guess we're referencing other movies tonight. So, I like, I keep thinking about Annihilation, right? Mm. And that whole idea of, like, self-destruction and putting ourselves in, on self-destructive paths. And I guess spoilers for Annihilation, but um, Lena's Affair is, like, an, a manifestation of that. And then I can't remember Oscar Isaac's character's name. I can only remember Natalie Portman's character's name. But then how he, he goes into the Shimmer because he knows about Natalie Portman's character's affair. And, and, and these things like that. Where it's like, Don is, act, Don is clearly acting out. And has been acting out for a while. So is that some kind of restlessness within himself? 
where he wants it all to blow up in his face? Or is it like he's so confident in Burt Cooper's capitalism beyond all else and knowing what Don is capable of and what Don has achieved that it is that game of chicken and he thinks Beetle Blink. I don't know. I think either read is totally valuable and totally interesting. And I don't know what my read is, but it's just something that I've been, I've been noodling. I feel like it kind of grabs me somewhere in the middle. Um, Like Don thought maybe it could go either way and just had decided, you know, fuck it. Mm -hmm. I'm not, whatever I'm doing, I'm not letting fucking Pete boss me around. Right. So I might not be able to get my girl to leave with me, but I can definitely be better than Pete goddamn Campbell. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, definitely because I don't think he thought Cooper was going to react that well. But I mean, it is, it, it must have been kind of nice. Like you said, man, must have been kind of relief thinking, what if I just destroyed everything that's been making me so unhappy up until this point and kind of like in, in a whole other way running away and just stop having to carry around this goddamn secret because all it is is someone having power over me instead of me being the one in charge. I feel like it's a little bit possible that, like, maybe his, like, feelings got hurt by Rachel being so disgusted with, like, his choice to just drop everything and leave. Mm-hmm. Um, so if he blew up his life and was forced to run, it would be kind of be like, ha, see? This is what I have to do. Elise, what do you think? I don't know. I, I would... I read, I kind of read a re- uh, review on um, AV Club of this episode. Is that Emily Vanderwolf's? Or... Yes. Yeah. I uh, I read her and it was interesting and she pointed out that, um, I read this like in between or after I wrote my notes, but um, she mentioned a scene in an earlier episode where I guess Don and Bert were talking and Bert was basically like, I only care about the work or Mm -hmm. something along Mm -hmm. those lines. And I don't know if like Don had that in the back of his mind where like Don gets the work done. So Bert wouldn't care about anything else. And I don't know. I kind of, I kind of like that and think Mm -hmm. maybe in the back of his mind, Don was thinking, well, Bert's just going to not necessarily, I don't mean take his side, but, like, not care about this because, like, Don gets the work done and gets his money for him. And if it all came out public, it would be worse for the firm than if it kept, it was kept secret. And, like, dealing with this drama is keeping all three of these men off their desks. Yeah, they're not being efficient or, like, working during this time. So, anyway, I I read that review, and I kind of liked that point of view. I do see it, and it does sound like Cooper. I don't know if I personally saw, like, Don having that in mind. But when, when Pete, like, confessed everything, I did see, just, like, looking at Cooper, he does strike me as the kind of person who's just, like, He's got his 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 sense of uh, morality and integrity and all that stuff. And the fact that someone would snitch like this, especially if it could potentially just be a very selfish thing, that he cannot respect that at all. I don't think it. He just doesn't strike me as the kind of person who would abide by that. 
You're probably right. I mean, it all happened very quickly, so mm. it's entirely possible that Don had literally nothing on his mind and was just, yeah. like, going with the flow of this conversation and what was happening. Mm-hmm. Um, it's. I found it... I just found it interesting how, after this whole thing, Bert was like, well, you can fire him if you want to. And the, and we had that earlier episode, because I rewatched the series, like... I'm not, I haven't been rewatching with your podcast, but I've been, <gasps> I rewatched... okay you can take down that fake shock a little bit um i'm just kidding um i watched it like a couple months ago so i was like all right i know it pretty well um there's like the earlier episode where like um pete like um what does he do he like he's in a meeting with a client and like like pitches copy and Mm-hmm. And like, remember Don, Pete like, Campbell's last out. day? Yeah, it's today. Um, I just pointed up, like I was like in the scene. Anyway, um, and like Bert was like, "Well, if we fire him, we lose all of these privileges because his his family's important." And it's like, what, like to Bert Cooper? Like I'm like I'm not sure what changed between then and now. I mean, yeah, so my, I feel like it is what what Annie just said. Like, he just doesn't like that he was snitching on him and all yeah. that other stuff. And I, they did the little play with Pete on his last day where they make him think that it's Don who saved his job. So right. maybe uh, Cooper thought that the loyalty would be born then. And it wasn't. So maybe he's thinking, like, this kid's a lost cause, so fire him if you want to. But, like, keep in mind, we don't know how loyalty is born. So this might still happen, even though it didn't the first time we kind of tried this. Yeah, that's a good point. And, Annie, you have another bird quote Mm -hmm. written in the notes. Um, And I think it's it's appropriate that you have it listed here. Um, Because it's, it's kind of a total summation of, I think who Don Draper slash Dick Whitman is in 1960. I assume you mean uh, a man is whatever room he is in. I, I That is, again, I think Cooper, for as little as we've gotten from him, and as sometimes he can be this kind of platitude-spouting kind of guy who loves Ayn Rand. Never forget. <laughs> there is something to him about like how he sees the good and morality in people, and... He doesn't want. It just seems like he he doesn't want to get lost in the complexities. He's like he's intention and drive and pulling yourself up by bootstraps and and integrity and all that stuff. And so, like, if the person that you are right now, whatever you're called, is this hardworking person who is doing the right thing generally, who is working to- working hard and working towards the business and the greater good and all that stuff, then whatever the rest. And I thought it was just such a fitting line to be applied to Don Draper because we see him slip into so many different versions mm-hmm. of himself depending on who he's with. And we don't really know which one is the real one. Either way, we just mostly see him being slightly uncomfortable in whatever skin he's in. Yeah. Mic drop. Mm, I was going to say, welcome to my TED talk. <laughs> <laughs> is Don the only person we really see that in this show, though? Or is everyone just kind of themselves? Like, we, I yeah, feel like we see I'm, it a lot more with the men. I feel like almost everybody is, it's almost like, not, yeah, like, everyone is kind of 
different depending on who their audience is or who who they're around. I mean, I find that I'm even like that sometimes, and it's like a human quality. Like even if it's good or bad, you know, it's not good or bad. It just is for sure. But do we see it like as demonstrative as it is with Dawn? Do we see? Because I feel like. Just talking about, it, I feel、mm-hmm. like the men are allowed、yep. this more than the women. I mean, we see so much more earnestness from Peggy. We see Betty, who's just constantly trying to be the person that she thinks she's supposed to be, even regardless of her her audience. I think Joan generally also tries to do the same thing because every time she starts letting her guard down, she、mm-hmm. starts finding that someone wants to sleep with her. Yeah. So that, but I mean, the line is a man is whatever room he is in.、Mm-hmm. Yes. Just thinking of the opening of this episode where when Don brings Duck Phillips in, and um, and like, <laughs> Bert's like, "Who'd you vote for?" and 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 Duck Phillips is like trying to figure out like how he should、yeah. answer, and he was like, "Well, if I say Kennedy, you'll try to reform me, but if I say Nixon, you think I'm buttering you up or whatever he says." And he's like, "So I'll say Nixon," and、mm-hmm. Bert Bert Cooper's like, "Okay, whatever, man." <laughs> like he he's like not buying it. He's like, "Whatever, you're lame.、Yeah. Like <laughs> I'm not buying any of this." Ah, so the person that you're telling me that you're the kind of person、exactly. that flatter me, <laughs> and he's like not impressed. In my opinion, I laughed about that because I was like, I wonder if this guy even votes, and that's why he had to do this like little、yeah. mind、I、game mean, like- about who he should <laughs> say because he didn't actually do the vote. Because we know, uh, old Don Draper's above voting, so <laughs> yeah.、Mm-hmm. I wonder if any of them voted. I I I felt. I mean, not to get on my like election kick over here, but I feel like they really only cared how it like affected the company, or how it affected their chances for getting laid. I did write that in my notes somewhere.、Um, where did I put it? It was like they're talking about the election, mostly caring about how it affects them personality, personally, which is not unlike. That's、now. totally true. Yeah, because I mean, like,、uh, I don't remember who said it, but someone says, you know, if Nixon wins, then we win because you know it benefits the company, and if Kennedy wins, uh, like you said, they could probably、yeah. get someone to sleep. Oh, with I'm so sorry. Let me console you. I will say, I think it was Kinsey who made a joke、uh-huh. about Rosetta,、uh, yeah. Rosetta Stone joke. <laughs> that was funny. It was Kinsey. Paul's read a book. It was a really kind、it. of yeah, s- smug. <laughs> Paul, Paul wants <laughs> to say it is kind of a smug little joke. <laughs> Paul's very smug and very pretentious, and he wants everyone to know how smart he is at all times. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> I mean,、time. like I'm not unattracted to it. Slight spoilers. He gets a beard eventually, so、what? I don't know if that's that's anyone's thing. Yeah.、Um, yes. It's、mm. it's. Oh yeah, and it turns out the rule of beards、uh, rings true. <laughs> oh, <laughs> continues to prove itself with beard. Oh no, <laughs> Melissa. I guess, I guess before we wrap up here, I'm I'm curious because we, speaking of Rosetta Stones,、um, we saw who the OG Don Draper was <gasps>、yeah. and how Dick Whitman came to adopt the Don Draper persona. Persona, and as the person on this this recording that. Encountered that for the first time. I'm curious what your thoughts and response were to all the the stuff that took place in Korea. Um. Yeah, I man, what a bummer. 
No wonder Don's such a, like, sad boy. Um, <laughs> but I mostly just thought, because um, you see that flashback really close to the line about you never know how, how loyalty is born. And I was wondering, just, I guess, to myself and now to you, is, like, is Dick Whitman, is this loyalty to Don Draper, like, I guess, if loyalty means stealing his identity and, you know, after accidentally killing him and then building this nice life on top of it, like, is is he, like, is he, like, honoring the original Don Draper by, like, becoming him and being very successful. Like, I can't tell if I even, like, believe that, but just, like, the way it was placed in the episode, I was, I was just thinking, like, what am I supposed to take from this? It's almost Purple Heart. I didn't connect it with the loyalty thing. I probably should have. I mostly just saw it as another time early on when Don went this is really hard. I don't like my life situation. I don't like the circumstances I'm in. I don't like myself right now. I'm going to run away For and sure. become someone else. And that's probably a more accurate read. But it, I think, I'm, like, I mean, it is coincidence that he became Don Draper, but, like, he could have, like, he didn't, I don't feel, he maybe didn't have to, like, keep that identity. Hmm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I thought Forget it was that boy extremely sad. The real gut punch for me and all the flashbacks, this time specifically because of what we kind of talked about in the notes and what you what you both talked about last episode, was baby Adam or little kid Adam, oh. because because mm. yeah. Don still doesn't know Adam. that Adam is dead, right? And it's so it's like. Mm-hmm that whole idea and it's the tagline for atlantics which is now on netflix i need to watch it you hear it's good but like the tagline for that movie just is a total gut punch because it talks about how all tagline for that movie is all love stories are ghost stories or something of that effect oh god Um, which like i mean spoiler alert that like type of romanticism is like very much my shit um that's why i want to watch it but like adam's going we know we had seen Adam had told Don that story earlier this season in episode five or whatever it was, right? In 5G, where it's like, I saw you on the train. I knew it was you. No one believed me. But then to see it, but seeing it after we know Adam has killed himself is just like, it's another gut punch. So That scene really got to me, too. And, like, kids have, like, no, like, no one believes anything kids say. And, like, that just, like, broke my heart. (laughs) And just Don, he's going to, I'm just going to have to call him Don. He keeps looking back as he walks away. And I feel like he's, you know, been trying to avoid looking back ever since then. Yeah. Yeah, he really took what that woman on the train said to him very seriously. I, um, forget that boy in the box. And I feel like do we think he has I don't, though like I, he's certainly try, been right. trying I, to i wonder like i i mean before that man said called him dick earlier in the season and before adam showed up i mean there's no way for us to know but i wonder how much time went by since he even like 
I mean, I'm sure he thinks every day about how he's really Dick Whitman. But, like, I wonder how much time went by since he had to, like, deal with any of it. Yeah. He looked really good digging that hole, though. <laughs> Lord I'm still, like, grossed out by the dog oh. tags being pulled off of the gross yeah. flesh, though. The feedback from the episode when he builds that playhouse and he's, like, sweaty, they're like, oh, you, like, sweat? Grime? That's exactly what I thought of. Because he looks like the American dream, as like we've mentioned more than once throughout this episode. He looks like the picture of what the all-American boy should be. He's going off to fight for this country. He's digging ditches. He looks amazing in a tank top. <laughs> he really does. When we, I, what, it's been a long time since I've seen this episode, so I forgot how... I keep forgetting how quickly yeah. time has passed. In these episodes, I think I was thinking a lot yeah. of these things happen a lot further down. And I it surprised me to see just how little time we actually got with the real life Dick mm. Whitman. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. sorry, the real life Don Draper. Yeah. It's almost like we didn't need to know him. I think, so talking about, again, the Atlantic's tagline about how all love stories are ghost stories and that idea of like, you know, ghosts coming back and whether they're they're little or metaphoric and now to reference another whole work, a whole like a haunting of Hill House thing, um, where ghosts can be both literal and metaphoric, I don't think this is the last we've seen of Fortnite of like a forty year old Don Draper. He would have been thirty in Korea, but you you get what I mean. The the the, the OG Don Draper. I think that that's fair to say. So well, we made it to the election, guys. Yeah, are we ready for bits election, and bobs? Election, election. Bits and bobs. Bits and It only took all season. <laughs> I remember working at night shift the night of the 2016 election and the very, very slight bit of hope and uh, at the beginning of shift and how everyone was just kind of like, yeah, we're paying attention to watch news to about what, I don't know, two o'clock in the morning, Eastern Standard Time, everyone sitting in a circle in a dark hallway, only like the machines of like mm. vital sign monitors beeping in the background. Everyone's asleep except us and us just being like, Ugh. and that reminded me a lot. I mean, this, the, the, the election scene reminded me a lot of that just... The slow momentum losing, just slowly losing momentum down to this general send, sense of bleh. I think I fell asleep about 30 minutes before <laughs> that. And like what stood out to me about like well, a couple things. A, like I can't imagine staying at work to watch election returns with like my coworkers because they're great, but like, no, thank you. <laughs> Something I've been like pondering the last four or five years and something I think that stands out when you have all of Sterling Cooper being so waspy is like how like the competitive sport nature of politics in like certain circles and certain like you know socioeconomic classes and things like that how it is like a competitive sport where you can have you can have an office party and have champagne and creme de menthon and make it like an event like it's entertainment when like I understand there's like a performative like element to it and especially like 
even more now in like a cable news era, but how like things like elections and politics in general have such a large effect on people's lives. But when you're insulated from that, from your own both kind of, you know, socioeconomic privilege and, you know, benefits of structural inequality, quality, be that, be it based on sex or gender or race, how you're insulated from that. So it all kind of becomes a game because you don't have the same stakes because you're protected by, from that, right? And that kind of keys into when they're talking about the election results the next day and it being a surprise. And Cooper says, if Kennedy's willing to buy an election, he's probably willing to play ball with us. And like, through kind of that entering 2020 lens, I'm like, what if I hate capitalism, right? Like, it's like, like I'm being somewhat <laughs> glib, but it's like just that idea of kind of like how our systems of oppression can survive no matter what and kind of are malleable and adaptable and we just kind of perpetuate the struggle. I don't know. It's, it's a bummer, man. So... Bert says something in the episode that kind of makes me laugh um, and is ridiculous. He was talking about how he was at the party, I guess, or whatever. I don't know if it was the returns or he was at a event the night before with um, every Republican except uh, MacArthur and, and um, Jesus. <laughs> and I was like, Oh, is is Jesus considered a Republican in this world? I mean, I think in today's world he anyway. is by a lot of people. I I would respectfully yeah, like disagree that with that reading. Um, but right. you know, I Jesus wanted people to pay their damn taxes. I mean, I'm I don't know much about Jesus, but no, I was saying like I mean, obviously I'm like atheist Jewish person over here and um so Jesus is not somebody that I, like, studied or learned a lot about. But in my limited knowledge, I felt I felt like that was kind of off pace. Yeah. A certain sect of the Republicans yeah. certainly would like to claim him yeah. for their own purposes. Fair. <laughs> I mean, I understand. I don't think it's fair, but... The, we don't have time on this podcast for Matt to sort out his, 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 <laughs> his, his, his Jesus feelings. So we'll just say that, yes, that there were a lot of Republicans still claim him today. Um, I have, I also have a couple of election fun facts. If anyone's always. interested. Yes. Let's hear them. <laughs> um, so this election was in 1960 and it was the first presidential election that included 50 states and it was the last election where Washington, D.C. did not vote. So after the next election, D.C. was included. And the previous election, I don't know how many states were involved, but it wasn't 50. And um, so that's, that's my fun facts. But I have an, a couple other election comments. Um, the closeness of the election in this case kind of reminded me of the 2000 election, which was the first time I was eligible to vote. Um, Al Gore and George W. Bush and Bert Cooper has this whole thing where he you know they're on the losing side I guess and he's like well we shouldn't we shouldn't push it because you don't want to ha not have a president for 30 days etc cetera, etc cetera. and I found that really interesting because in 2000 I don't remember anyone on the losing side saying that and we pushed for 
we, yes, myself included, pushed for a recount, and um, it was stopped by the Supreme Court, so George W. Bush won anyway, but, I mean, I just find the, I wonder, like, if anyone of the Democrats was like, oh, maybe we shouldn't do a recount just not to draw this out. Mm. And um, one other... I mean, I don't know if anyone had anything else to say about that, but my other comment was more about civics lessons and how they didn't want to, uh, Betty and Don did not want to explain the electoral college to, um, Sally. And I was like, you know, I'm a woman that doesn't have children, but I felt like, you know, even if Sally doesn't understand, they should have told her what, what it was, unless they didn't know how to explain it. I mean, that felt really weird to me too, hearing it. Um, because just the way he says, like, I don't think that conversation's appropriate for children. Like, mm, really? Like, I feel like... Yeah. I don't think it's... Like, that seems crazy. Like, what's inappropriate about the Elector College? And, like, I mean, I actually have a list of items that I might think are inappropriate. <laughs> you know what I mean? But it's not like it's a topic that's inappropriate for kids. It would have been better, or it would have, like, been less jarring, I think, if he would have been like, not right now, it's bedtime. Yeah, I feel like he just didn't want to deal with it, or maybe, I mean, as he said earlier, he, I mean, he doesn't seem, like, he's not a stupid, okay, that's not the right word. People know things and don't know things. It doesn't mean that they're stupid or not stupid. Um, I just feel like maybe he didn't know how to explain it, or, like, maybe he didn't understand it himself to explain it. I don't know. Yeah, I was kind of under the impression that, like, one, he just didn't want to deal with it, so he was just saying that it was inappropriate because it was just an easy excuse and hard for people to argue against. And two, I'm just like, I mean, he didn't, he was a poor kid in, like, post-depression era, middle of nowhere. There's a good chance he may not fully understand it himself. Uh, he that may even be why he doesn't really vote because um, it's just a some abstract thing that he doesn't fully comprehend or um, or was like you know he raised around so he was just like it's just one easy way that people that make sense kids. I just I'm very civics minded and everyone should know what's going on yeah and you definitely shouldn't act like politics are like something inappropriate like that's just it reads mm-hmm wrong right like I grew up like my dad always took me to the polls with him so I like literally like watched him vote when I was a kid and it was awesome yeah and again to go with like low low expectations for men at least he wasn't like well that's no topic yeah (laughs) that would have been worse (laughs) (laughs) which I I I mean he might have meant that and I felt a little bit of like shadows of that just by the sole fact that Betty didn't do anything to explain the Electoral College to her. She said, oh, ask your dad when he gets home, mm-hmm. which, you know, the generous reading is that, like, she also didn't feel like dealing with it, and so she said, ask your dad, which is totally fair. Children are exhausting. But also, there could have been some reason why she felt like she wasn't, like, allowed to do that with her daughter, so that's gross. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that would, like... It would be showing off that she knew something or that she was smart, and that would well, be Well, we already know that, like, probably. Don decides who they're voting for, which is still something that she just said because Don doesn't vote anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I almost wonder if he said that to his 
coworkers that he doesn't vote just to, like, get out of having the conversation. But, I mean, he might not have voted on the way home, so. Mm-hmm. One thing I did want to point out in the past, I've been keen to point out, like, any people of color in the back, usually in the background, certainly not in the foreground, uh, in different episodes. We haven't really seen anyone for a while, and in this episode... Peggy mentions that when she thinks when someone has stolen something from her little cubby that I believe it was the elevator operator and some janitor were fired even though they weren't at the party and it took me a little while to catch up with it but I went those sound like the only two people of color we've seen in this building on yep, this show in that is episodes. so awful it's like oh that's like such a small like throwaway thing that is easy to miss and then you realize nope nope that's yeah. what happened that's what happened and of course that's what happened even though it was probably one of the drunk like prep school boys walking around during the party i um i did some googling about this also because she says they stole about three dollars from her which paul is like if you shut up i will give you three dollars because it means nothing to him because he probably makes so much more money than she does and in today's money, in 2019, that's about 50 bucks. That's, like, not nothing. That's not insignificant. It's not nothing. Yeah. Right. That's not nothing yeah. to me. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. her mad money. That's more mad money than I have, I guess, yeah. is what I'm saying. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> well, and I guess to kind of my other bit and, bit and, bits and bobs that I didn't put in the notes that I guess ends on a slightly more whimsical note... Um, when they're acting out Paul's play, um, Sal and Joan look really good together. Um, yeah. So she was looking at him too. Yeah. Yeah. N- not to not to detract from the other more important comment, but I think they thought they looked really good together. But I also thought when she looked at him, I thought it was more of like a knowing, mm. like. Mm, like maybe you were like putting that on, look rather than I like would not a looking put that at him, looking her. at him. She, she would know. She would know. Yeah, I mean he seemed. Yeah, like she knows what it's like when someone it, kisses her and wants exactly. her. Exactly, and like he seemed to make a whole show of it. So, which is sad. That's mm-hmm. sad though, right? Making a show of it like that's. Un- yeah. It was probably really nice, though, to be kissing someone who didn't want her. <laughs> That's probably true. What a nice break. Well, this has been great. Thank you, Elise, for joining us. This has been has been rad. So thank you so much for, for your time and, and for joining us. It's been great. Thank you for having me. Um, this has been wonderful. Yeah, it has been. Thanks, Elise. I love listening to you guys every week, so it's nice to be part of the conversation and hopefully i'll sound as smart as the rest Smarter. of you um before we go at least tell everyone where they can find you on the internet if they so choose um i and mean if you so choose <laughs> i mean it's fine um i'm mostly just you know being vague and emotional on my twitter um at elise underscore deborah e-l-y-s-e underscore d-e-b-r-a but also um, me and a couple of friends, including Melissa, have another uh, have an Instagram where we um, take one of our favorite characters from one of our favorite book series um, by Rainbow Rowell, and 
we have our um, our favorite character Baz. Um, he goes around the world and we track that and it's a lot of fun and it's um, on Instagram at flat Basley F L A T B A Z L Y. Yes, I would go follow Baz on his adventures. <laughs> <laughs> You can find me on Twitter at Mellow Yellow, which is M-E-L-L-O-O Yellow. And you can find me on Instagram, hanging out with Baz. And you can find me on another podcast called Wild Pretty Things. You can find me on Instagram or on Twitter at Pop Artery. Or you can uh, check over, check me over at the Daily Nightly, uh, Jane Austen podcast. I do with our lovely friend Jesse. We are currently taking a break, but when we come back, we're going to be starting Pride and Prejudice. You can also follow us on our Instagram there at the Daily Nightly. Matt, where but, are you? Well, thank you for adding that that little part at the end because when it was just where are you, I'm like that's kind of existential. I don't know if I can answer that, but on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> on the internet you can find me on twitter at mattyhue m-a-t-t-y-h-u-g-h where full disclosure as we're in the thick of award season i will probably be tweeting about that and you know my kevin costner fandom that now replaces my star wars fandom um and suspiria always tweeting about suspiria you can follow our podcast on twitter as well at at still great pod and Annie, I hear you can follow the podcast somewhere else now. Is that true? Yes, on a completely empty Instagram. Uh, it's still great pod. I love consistency. Also, if it's if you enjoy the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. And tune in next week when we discuss episode 13, the season finale of season one, titled The Wheel. I'm pouring wine, people. <laughs>